If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 5 and verse 16. If you're following along in the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, you can turn right to page number 815. And when you have found Amos 5, verse 16, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll be reading the rest of this chapter through verse 27. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which is the Bible found in the pews in front of you. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we study about the day of the Lord and Amos' prophecy, that you would instruct our hearts to bring the right amount of gravity to what we hear and what you would say. Clear up misunderstandings. Break apart misplaced trust and assurance. Help us, Father, as we study to understand what you would have us to learn and how you would have us to live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not a fan of horror movies. Just full-out confession right there. Uh, I'm squeamish for one. Like, Christina, if she knows that I'm cutting vegetables or something like that, if I cut my finger with a kitchen knife, I might pass out on the floor. It is a thing, I'm just telling you. Especially with the hands. I don't know what it is, but like, ugh. I'm thinking about it, and you might have to pick me up in a minute. But I also don't like the whole jump scare thing, like where you're just watching, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, is I going to get you out of the screen? You know, uh, I'm not a fan of that. But let me tell you, if I had to, sorry, some of you are like, my heart, I can't handle that, Jason. <laughs> um, if I had to write a horror movie script, okay, only using Bible verses, which would be an interesting thing, right? This would be my jump scare scene, right? Like the suspense scene, 
You've got Amos chapter 5 and verse 19, where discussing the day of the Lord, the prophet Amos says, it will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. So you got that in your mind in your horror film? Like there's the lion, you're like, ah, you turn around, ah, there's a bear right behind you, okay? But then he's like, then when you think you've gotten rest and the music gets calm yet suspenseful and you're like breathing heavy in your house, you shut the door, the bear and the lion are outside and you go to rest your hand on the wall and what's there? A snake to bite your hand, which in my, in my horror movie, I am not acting because if I was the actor, I would have just given up in front of the lion because I know the snake is coming. Like, I hate snakes, so I cannot possibly imagine uh, the horror that would take place if I was in my own home, Camilla Harris, and reaching for a door handle and there was a snake wrapped around the door handle. It would terrify me. She had a snake wrapped around her door handle. That's why I said that. That was a while ago. Everybody can breathe out. A sigh of relief. She's still here with us. The truth of the matter is, the reason Amos had to use this kind of graphic imagery with the Israelites is that they had completely misunderstood the day of the Lord. So in your outlines, that's the first point. Don't misunderstand the day of the Lord. Don't misunderstand the day of the Lord. What becomes evident from Amos's preaching is he didn't exactly have to explain this concept. The day of the Lord, for whatever reason, was something with which the Israelites were already uh, aware of or thinking about. But what he has to do is reorient their thinking about what the day of the Lord would be for them. Their mental picture of that day had a lot more to do with their hopes that God would judge their enemies, bring peace to the land, and that his judgment would be entirely for them, those nations, the other people out there. The day of the Lord, according to the average 8th century Israelite, B.C., would have been, in their minds, a day to look forward to. Light, life, hope, peace, and prosperity. Bring on the day of the Lord, they would have said. And Amos says, not so fast. Not so fast. Look at Amos 5.18. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. And then in verse 20, Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom, without any brightness in it? Far from a day of judgment on the other nations... The day of the Lord would be inescapable gloom and judgment and hopelessness for Israel. You see, friends, Amos may have been the first to use this day of the Lord terminology, but he was not the last among the prophets. It also occurs, this phrase, the day of the Lord in Isaiah, Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, numerous times in Joel, in Obadiah, Zephaniah. Malachi, it's like throughout the prophets. So the ESV study Bible, it has some helpful notes about this phrase to clarify what it would mean for the Lord to come, for the day of the Lord. It means judgment upon those who are unfaithful. In Amos, the term, the day of the Lord, points to their coming judgment of the Assyrians on the Israelites. 
In Zephaniah, it points to the coming judgment of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Other prophets use the same term to signal God's forthcoming punishment among the nations. For example, Babylon in Isaiah 13, or Egypt in Jeremiah 46, or Edom in Obadiah verse 15, and among other nations, like in Joel 3. In some cases, the prophet uses the term to denote something farther off in the future, perhaps Malachi 4 and Joel 3. But all of this indicates is that the day is not unique, but a repeated circumstance uh, as situation calls for it. If it helps you to think of it like this, think about um, theme and variation, wherein we have one Savior, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with a capital S. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, there were those who God would raise up to save the people of Israel. In particular, you think of the book of Judges. God gave them multiple deliverers, figures, that were a theme and a variation of the one to come, the true and the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. In a similar way, there are many days of the Lord in the Old Testament where God says judgment will come, but all of them are a theme and variation pointing to the great day, that day when Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. So the New Testament writers pick up on this Old Testament phrase and they give further development to it and such that you hear it called the day of Jesus Christ, the day when Jesus will return. Paul writes about that day in 1 Thessalonians, describing it like this for believers. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So for Christians, we long for the day of Jesus Christ with hope and joyful anticipation because Christ will raise us up and we will be with him. But when Christ comes, the Bible also says he will judge the living and the dead. Every human being who has ever lived will be resurrected on the final day. And when that occurs, Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, as Matthew tells us. So in a way, I must warn you, like the prophet Amos warned the Israelites, the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment if your faith is not in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and your acceptance into eternal delight in the presence of the Heavenly Father. The great and awesome day of the Lord will be darkness and not light for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, as uh, Jonah was kind of pointing out, it will be the baddest, baddest, baddest day. And I know we chuckled, but hear me. It will be a day of inescapable punishment and eternal wrath in hell. Jonah was spot on. He was spot on. He was saying in a way a child can. It is not a day to long for if you are not in Christ. It's not a day to laugh about if you're not in Christ. 
So I sound the alarm with my second point this morning. Don't misplace your assurance. Don't misplace your assurance. What led the people to a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord is that they misplaced their assurance. They put their hope in an empty religious ceremony, ritualistic sacrifices devoid of any real covenant faithfulness or obedient living. They had confused assurance with complacency. They were completely unworried about the certainty of their salvation. They thought they were good. The issue was they professed to be safe or saved, so to speak, but they exhibited a total lack of the sort of evidence that would make their profession of faith credible. One commentator says, quote, theirs was a groundless confidence, which would not bear the weight of the divine majesty in the day of the Lord's coming, end quote. This is what it is like when we lower the bar of what it means to be a so-called Christian to merely profession or deciding to follow Jesus. There are a number of people who are under the impression that if a child or a teenager or an adult prays a prayer or walks an aisle, that they are eternally secure. There are churches who are guilty of giving people false assurance that if they prayed a prayer at some point in the past and acknowledged sin and that Jesus died and confessed that, that somehow they will be safe in heaven forever, hear me, regardless of how that person lives the rest of their lives. Now, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, important word, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, you will be saved. But Paul also says, the just will live by faith. Faith lives. Faith acts. Faith is not void of works. In fact, James says, faith without works is dead. The Bible knows nothing of a born-again Christian who does not demonstrate their salvation in how they live their lives. Not perfectly. Hear me, not perfectly. No, not at all but progressively sanctified? Yes. In other words, if you think you can continue in sin because Jesus shed his blood to cover all your sins and you're like, well, then I can just do whatever I want to, you've misunderstood the grace of God. You've misunderstood the end, the purpose for which Christ saves a person. He does not save ineffectually. He saves powerfully and to the uttermost, as the writer of Hebrews says. He not only gives you a heart of flesh, the new covenant promises that he will cause you to walk in all of his statutes and be obedient. A person who merely prays a prayer or decides to follow Jesus but later demonstrates no change whatsoever is like what one pastor has coined in the term an unsaved Christian. They profess Christianity, but the Christianity they profess is empty, hollow, dead inside. It's all form and no function. The Bible tells us what God thinks about that kind of religion It's found in verse 21. Amos, speaking on behalf of the Lord, the God of armies, says, I hate it. I despise your feasts. 
I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. I wonder, can you think of another passage in the Bible more deliberate in expressing God's divine hatred of something than this? I hate it. I despise it. I take no delight in it. I will not accept it. I will not look upon it. Take it away from me. I won't even listen. But apparently the Israelites were like that friend that you have, right? The friend that can never really take a hint when you're trying to get it through to them. They're like, so you're saying there's a chance, God? Like, are we? You're just kidding, right? That's how they were thinking about the day of the Lord. Could you just be more straightforward with me? I'm not understanding the message here. Amos is just blunt. Did you know this was in your Bible? Like, this is straight on right at you. As painful as it may be for a church family to practice church discipline, this is why our church practices the meaningful membership and church discipline, because we don't ever want to be guilty of not telling someone that their life does not match up to their profession of faith. This is essentially what it means when we remove a member under discipline, that the words they say are not aligning with the life they're, they're living. And God hates that. It's a lie to the world about his character, and it mischaracterizes the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't ever sort of save somebody. He transforms the way we live. Which leads me to uh, the third point this morning in your outlines, which is don't mistake your Gilgals. What is that? Okay, let me give my best to help you understand what this means. Don't mistake your Gilgals. To understand this point, we have to look back at the context of this chapter. This is a section in chapter 5, and back in verse 4 and 5, we read this. The Lord says to the house of Israel, so this is the address to whom he's giving this address of uh, prophetic doom. He says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to, here it is, Gilgal or journey to Beersheba for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. The places where these empty religious ceremonies were taking place were in Bethel, Beersheba, and yes, Gilgal. Amos Amos says Gilgal will certainly go into exile. Now I promise this will be worth it when we get to it, but let me give you a little bit of background on the location that we're discussing. Gilgal was the first place where Israel encamped in Palestine after the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. All right, talking under the leadership of Joshua, chapter 4, verse 19. No doubt the tabernacle would have been set up there since Israel occupied Gilgal as a beachhead of sorts uh, for some time and used it as a center for their commonwealth. There were several religious events that were significant that took place at Gilgal, one of which was the uh, the Hebrews that were males that were born in the wilderness wanderings for 40 years, they were all circumcised at Gilgal. Uh, they celebrated the Passover there. The manna stopped coming there. 
uh, divine manifestation to Joshua by the commander of the army of the Lord uh, appeared to Joshua there at Gilgal. Gilgal was the first glimmer of hope that the Israelites would receive the promised land, the promised inheritance. It was a military foothold, and it remained important all the way through to this time in the 8th century B.C. You had Saul uh, anointed and then later rejected at Gilgal. Samuel judged on his judging circuit there. Amos and Hosea tell us Gilgal is still being used as a religious place. So the key point that I'm making today when I say don't mistake your Gilgals rests on the name of the location. The name itself, Gilgal, means the rolling. Gilgal means the rolling. And the book of Joshua explains why Gilgal was named the rolling. Verse 9 of chapter 5 says, The Lord then said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, the place is still called Gilgal today. The place is called the rolling. Now I owe this insight to Amos from the commentator Alec Motyer. Now turn in your Bibles to verse 24, and I'm going to put Amos 5.24. Uh, Brother Justin, if you could put that on the screen. Um, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, because the CSV says, let justice flow. But I think the better translation in English is, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, it's as if in Amos 5.24, the Lord were saying, yes, you have been to Gilgal, but there is a rolling you've forgotten about. You've forgotten about the rolling of righteousness and justice. The religion of Gilgal was going nowhere. It was like religion in a box. It had no outflow. It was becoming stagnant. The pilgrims would roll into the festivals, but they would never roll out with justice and righteousness for other people. What is the result when you get a stagnant pool of water? It stinks. Reread verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. It was a stench to God. So friends, I wonder, are you doing the wrong kind of rolling? Are you doing the kind of religious ritualism of coming to church, maybe even reading your Bible or writing a check to the church or doing things and going through motions, but you're never letting the word of God roll through you and out into the way you live. Let justice roll at this place. Do you exhibit correct moral practice in your daily uh, social life? Is righteousness flowing in the cultivation of a correct way of thinking and moral principles that guide you every day as you live. You see, I think when we start to piece it all together, this concept makes sense of the last few verses of the chapter, which some have found to be difficult to interpret. So the question in verse 25, I think, should be answered with the affirmative. I think that the Israelites would have nodded their heads. Yes, they did. So verse 25, the question is, House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? 
And I think the Israelites would have kind of, yeah, that's what we did, God. But the, the way the question should have landed was something more like this. Was it only sacrifices and offerings you brought me during the 40 years in the wilderness? And I'll explain that interpretive view with the next verse in a moment. The point is, sacrifice on its own, not joined with a life of obedience, is worthless. God did not provide the Israelites with the sacrifices for them to check a box and then live however they wanted to. It wasn't just like, okay, go do whatever I want to do and then slaughter some animal and I'm good. That's not how it was designed to work. The sacrifices were a means to an end. What was the purpose? A relationship with a, hear me, holy and a righteous God. A God who loves justice. He loves mercy and righteousness. The sacrifices were designed to keep a people in relationship with him and to be a way for ongoing covenant love between them. They were never meant to be abused or just perfunctory so that you could live however you wanted to. And I think that that interpretation, the way I'm seeing this of verse 25, is confirmed with verse 26. It's a juxtaposition. If you say, yes, you brought sacrifices to me, then God says, but you have taken up Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you made for yourselves. In other words, God says, these things don't go together. They don't comport. You say you love me, but when I lift the lid on your religious life, you're also worshiping the star gods of the Assyrians. Incidentally, this Kaiwan thing is apparently Saturn. The Assyrian astral deities were the gods of the Israelites in some sort of syncretistic worship experience at Gilgal, basically. They were coming and saying they're worshiping God, but they're also worshiping other gods. And I imagine the Lord was like, you know, you can't sacrifice to me and worship other gods. That's literally the first commandment I gave you. You shall have no other gods before me. And so, to quote this commentator, I wish I had come up with this one. This is good. This is worth writing down. The gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel long before the armies of Assyria occupied its streets and towns. The gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel long before the armies of Assyria occupied its streets and its towns. Friends, I wonder, do the gods of our modern age occupy your heart? Are you consumed with money, sex, fame, power, drugs, then don't be surprised when the rendered verdict comes on the last day. Who is your God? Amos tells the Israelites, so I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, which kind of corresponds to verse 4 and 5 earlier. Gilgal will surely go into exile. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. A people who had never really held the title deeds of inheritance, however much they thought they did, must either come into the place of blessing or forfeit the blessing of the place. Another great 
comment from Alec Motyer. You see, the expectation of covenant relationship with God has never changed. He desired the obedient faithfulness of his people. The Israelites had it all turned around. They thought that because they were brought into the promised land, that it was something they deserved forever, regardless of how they lived their lives. Friends, that is not the God of Scripture. He cares not only about your positional relationship with Him, He cares about your gradual growing likeness to Him. He is holy, and we, therefore, are called to be a royal priesthood and, as Peter says, a holy nation. And the good news of the new covenant is that God does what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. So I go to Romans 8 to share an extended passage of Scripture with some brief comment after as I close. God has done, Paul says, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. They're like the Israelites whose gods are the astral deities. Like they are thinking about things they want and thinking of themselves and not the God of the Bible. But those who live according to the Spirit, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hear, hear me. You cannot go to church, do the religious thing, and please God. You cannot do it in your own strength. It is done in the Spirit. You, however, Paul says to the believers, called by God according to chapter 1 of Romans, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you see assurance there? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And here the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's good assurance, isn't it? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Think Gilgal, think promised land, heirs of the promises. How? By the spirit in Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I've read that passage to show you the distinction between the Gilgals. 
There is a life of the Spirit for believers, New Testament Christians who live by faith, who are indwelt by the Spirit. And there's a life of religious motion that has at its core the gods of this world. The promised Holy Spirit does not make hollow, empty, half-hearted Christians. The Spirit convicts, guides, puts sin to death through us, and assures us of the promised inheritance as heirs. So, don't misunderstand the day of the Lord. You cannot stand before God without being born, as Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit. Don't misplace your assurance. It is not in your flesh and in your ritual religion, but the Spirit dwelling in you. And don't mistake your Gilgals, a stopped-up religion that doesn't roll out in justice and righteousness, makes clear the Spirit of God does not dwell within you. But if the Spirit is in you, then let it roll out on Tuesday at 10 a.m. when your boss is being hard to get along with. If the Spirit dwells in you, let it roll out on Monday when you see a classmate being mistreated at school. Let justice flow out of you. If the Spirit is in you, then let it roll through every minute of every day. Let the Spirit roll through you on Thursday when you are tempted to lust. Let the Spirit roll through you, dear elderly saint, as you suffer and groan in your body, eagerly awaiting for the day of the Lord. Because for the Spirit-filled Christian, that day, I get to end with good news, will not be darkness, but everlasting light.